I think there is this assumption that if you go west, you are loyal to Brigham Young and the Twelve, but if you do not, you are disloyal. And Lucy is an exception to that. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back, and we're your co-hosts. We'll be talking today about Chapter 1 of Saints Volume 2, Gather Up a Company. And today we're grateful to have with us Jed Woodworth, who's the Managing Historian for the Saints Project. Welcome, Jed. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do for the Saints Project and your background so they, they know who you are. Well, I have a PhD in history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and my specialty in American history is the colonial and early national American period. So I have some background in the context for the early history of the church. And my main duty is to ensure that the history is accurate, to make sure that our writing measures up to the highest of standards, that we're source accurate. And I also incorporate feedback from a number of reviewers, external reviewers, general authority reviewers, including the First Presidency. And how long have you been working on the project? About four years. So my initial duty was to be the volume editor of volume three of Saints. And then last year I became the managing historian of, of the project. Before coming to Saints, what are some projects that you worked on that our, our listeners might have heard of or maybe they haven't heard of? Well, I was on the web team, which is a small team of writers who write content for the internet. So I did. And that would be at history.churchofjesuschrist.org. There's lots of articles and um, essays and things that have been written. Um, our listeners can go and check that out. That's right. And so one of the projects we worked on was writing background to the Doctrine and Covenants, and those essays were published in a book called Revelations in Context. I also worked on the Gospel Topics essays, which were published a few years ago on difficult or controversial matters in church history. So, Jed, we are thrilled that you're joining us today. Before we get into our discussion about Chapter 1 of Saints, Volume 2, where did we leave off in Saints, Volume 1? So at the end of Volume 1, we have the Saints having left Nauvoo. The Vanguard Company had gone across the Mississippi River, and they are camping in a place called Sugar Creek. And we leave with the Saints in an uncertain condition. There are probably 6,000 to 8,000 Saints who are preparing to head west. The number is uncertain because even among the leadership, it wasn't clear how many Saints would actually pack up and come. There was not a count taken, but in the thousands, they are preparing to head west, and they think that they are going at least 1,000 miles across the Rocky Mountains to an area that is uninhabited by white settlers. There are a number of Indian tribes who live on this land, but the saints know that they need to go to a place that white settlement is not because in the past they've had difficulty everywhere they've been with the great numbers of saints who have gathered together. This is, of course, intimidating to established settlers. And so they're heading to a place that they know not of, but they're confident that this is a place where they will find peace and where they will be able to practice their religion in peace, which they have been looking for, for the really the entire 15 years of the church's existence. So when volume two begins, 
we actually go back in time uh, a number of months to recap some of what we knew at the end of volume one. So, Jed, the, the opening line of volume two, I've had an opportunity to work with a number of our reviewers, and uh, universally, I think people actually love this line. Who, who found that? How did it come to be? And tell us about this speech from Lucy Mack Smith. Well, Ben, you're asking a secret that is a writer's secret. Okay. We, we you don't can't talk, tell us. <laughs> we don't talk about who invented what line. We work as a team. Okay. But it is a great line. I think it may be the best opening line since Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. If you don't know that line, look it up. Okay. That's a great line, too. But I yeah. want to speak about the dead. Right. That's a that's a pretty compelling, you're like, whoa, what's going to happen here? Right. And part of what's great about the line is that you don't expect that out of a church publication. And so there's this ambiguity built into the line. But quickly, we learn that this faithful, dyed-in-the-wool Latter-day Saint woman, Lucy Mack Smith, wants to tell an audience that has grown to perhaps 11,000 people about her children. And it, not just Joseph Smith Jr., her most famous son, but she wants to tell them about Samuel and Hiram and even William, who is an off-again, on-again Latter-day Saint. She wants to tell them about what her family has done to grow this church from a tiny mustard seed to something that has been flourishing and sprouting and now is growing across the ocean. She mentions that it's been 18 years since Joseph received the plates. And as we were preparing this morning before we began recording, we were just kind of trying to put that in context. So it's been 18 years from the time we're recording to the time of 9-11. So just kind of thinking back for our listeners, where were you in 9-11? Well, that's how long it's been since Joseph got the plates. In some ways, 18 years passes very, very quickly. And in other ways, this has been an incredibly remarkable transformative 18 years, not only for the church, but for all of these people who have been gathering from around the world. And that's 18 years from finding the plates. That's not translation and the restoration of the gospel. And that's amazing. Well, and you mentioned, Jed, that there were potentially 11,000 saints that lived in the Nauvoo area at the time. Do we know what the total church membership was at this time in 1845? There are various estimates. The best estimate for Nauvoo was put forward some years ago by Susan Easton Black of 12,000 at a peak, which made Nauvoo the second largest city in Illinois next to Chicago. Chicago was wow. growing by leaps and bounds in the 1840s and had far eclipsed Nauvoo. But nonetheless, Nauvoo was a large city. And all the more amazing that the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, was essentially asking the saints to leave. It's hard to imagine any head of state asking for the second largest city, the citizens of that city, to leave because there was conflict surrounding that city. So he was not willing to support them. And when that became clear, Brigham Young knew that the time was ripe for the saints to leave and find a new resting place. And really, we can see the hand of the Lord in this move because the saints could not have become the people that the Lord wanted them to become without having a long period of unimpeded growth, which they found in the West. And so at the time that Lucy's giving this talk, the saints are in the middle of this, right? This decision to move West. 
Is that right? That's right. They were planning on leaving. They were making wagons by the... By the wagon load. <laughs> yeah. Let me try that again. They were making so, wagons by the wagon load. Try. Well, the amazing thing is, is that everyone was making wagon wheels. So I need to say that. So that's right. They were preparing to leave everyone, all hands, children, women, men of all ages. They were all making things, and especially wagons, wagon wheels. Every wagon had to have four wheels. And so children, instead of going to school, they were whittling the spokes of wagons. And the saints had to have thousands of wagons to go west, and everyone was needed to help make these wagons. So it was an uncertain time. But it was also a time where many saints felt the hand of the Lord guiding the church. There was great promise that finally we would escape the persecutors, the mobs who were gathering around Nauvoo, who had threatened to to burn the city if the saints did not leave. And then at the same time, and this should not be forgotten because this is really at the center of what the saints were doing in Nauvoo, they were building a temple. And so the speech by Lucy Mack Smith was given in a temple setting in the assembly room where the general conference of the church was happening. And these were the hallowed walls where the ceilings of couples and families were going on, and the endowment would shortly be given. A couple months after this, the endowment would be essentially democratized, and ceilings between husband and wives would happen in December and January and early February of 1845 and 1846. And so there was great anticipation that, once again, the power of the Lord would be revealed through these sacred ordinances, and that these ordinances would help galvanize, give confidence to, and help encourage the saints as they left for the West. What do you think was Lucy's purpose in this speech? Who is she trying to reach? We get only a tiny bit of it in the book, but who is she trying to to reach out to, and what was she trying to communicate that day? Well, there were a number of things that she wanted to say. One thing that comes out is that she had just finished her memoir, her life story, and she did mention this to the saints. And she knew, again, that many of the saints did not know her family. And one of the things that she says about this family is that she mentioned Samuel. So Samuel had died in 1844 quite suddenly of a mysterious illness for them. And Samuel was still a young man. But one of the things that she said in her speech was that this gospel began with Joseph Jr. having an experience with the angel Moroni, but then Samuel, another brother, was the one who took the Book of Mormon, once it was translated, as a missionary early in 1830, and he went to a home in Menden, New York, where he met a man named John Green, who was a Methodist preacher, and his wife, Rhoda Young Green. Some of our listeners know that name, but this is Brigham Young's sister. And John Green was not interested in the Book of Mormon, but Samuel left it, and then when he came back, he encountered Rhoda. And Rhoda felt immediately that there was a spirit behind Samuel that she could not deny, and she invited him to pray with her, and she became converted to the Book of Mormon. And Lucy says in her speech, and thus began the work. It began with Rhoda Young Green and Samuel Smith finding her. And then through Rhoda Young Green, the entire Young family was converted. And out of that, we get Brigham Young. And so there's a kind of symmetry here where Lucy is accounting for the leadership of the church, 
not only through her son, Joseph Jr., but through Brigham Young. She is accounting for the conversion of Brigham Young, who is now leading the saints. And she is as well positioned as anyone to tell the story. And she believes that, indeed, maybe only she knows the story as fully, with the exception, perhaps, of the Greens. And, of course, with the conversion of the Youngs comes the conversion of Brigham Young's best friend, Heber C. Kimball. So out of this small mustard seed of an effort comes great families who become bulwarks in the church. So we know that Lucy doesn't go west, and so we can talk about her decision, but she's also supportive of of Brigham Young. And so I think sometimes we assume that the people who stayed in Nauvoo and didn't decide to go west were not supportive of his leadership. Am I, am I totally off base or is that? Because so what she says about Brigham Young that I wanted to say is that she tells the saints, do not be discouraged and say that you can't get wagons and things. And so she's saying, you know, despite poverty and persecution, like her own family was able to overcome so much and still keep the commandments. And she says, as Brigham says, you must all be honest or you will not get there. And if you feel cross, you will have trouble. So anyway, she's just motivating them and being such an inspiration for them. So anyway, tell us more about her decision to stay and the events surrounding this. Well, first of all, let me say that you are not off base. I think there is this assumption that if you go west, you are loyal to Brigham Young and the Twelve. But if you do not, you are disloyal. And Lucy is an exception to that. She is loyal to Brigham Young. She supports the move west. And she says in the speech, I'm not sure if I'm going to go. But I may go if William comes back. She didn't know where he went. He wasn't in Nauvoo. And she says, if William comes and the rest of my family, and by this she means her three adult daughters whom she loves, and probably Emma is also included in this. She says, if my family goes, I will go with them. She is, after all, 70 years old. And she needs the security of younger people to care for her. So she was supportive of Brigham. And one of the interesting things about the memoir that she has written, and I should say here that the memoir was written with the assistance of Howard Corey, who was a clerk of Joseph Smith's, and Howard's wife, Martha, who is a reader and a writer of great capacity. And so she has assistance in keeping her family history. And I think there's a great lesson in that. We should be finding people who have great experience in the church and have stories to tell, but maybe haven't told them on their own or not sure how to tell them. But without the Corys, it's quite doubtful that this memoir ever would have happened. Brigham Young is never mentioned in this memoir. It's really about the Smith family, about her husband and her children and her extended family going back. So if you just read the memoir, you might suppose Lucy falls in the category of a dissenter that felt like she needed to stay in Nauvoo and not follow the Twelve. But the speech makes clear that she supports the move west. She knows this is right. And over and over again, she calls Brigham Brigham, which is interesting. We know Brigham Young is Brigham, but at that time, most women would call a man Mr. She calls her own husband Mr. Smith. And she doesn't call Brigham Young President Young or Mr. Young. And that's not because she is trying to be disrespectful. To the contrary, she actually has this friendship with him and she respects him. But there's a familiarity there that comes across in the speech where she is able to call the president of the Twelve Apostles by his first name among the saints. Let me play just a little clip here from the book. 
that describes just very briefly Lucy's sentiment for, for Brother Brigham. I pray that the Lord may bless the heads of the church, Brother Brigham and all, she said. When I go to another world, I want to meet you all. I love that little statement that she's sort of acknowledging, I'm not sure if after you leave we'll see each other again, but I am sure when we get to the other side, I'll be there to meet you. And she certainly is casting her lot and throwing her support in with with Brother Brigham and the Twelve. Right, and among those people that she is looking forward to meeting would be the saints in Nauvoo. And I think you're right that she doesn't know if she'll ever see them again. Again, there's this uncertainty about traveling over a thousand miles into the great unknown, and none of these people had ever done this. And so you just don't know. And especially with the death in her family and and the fact that she had lost so many, death was a familiar specter to this woman. But she was looking forward to seeing her husband and her sons once again. She says in the speech, I think it's one of the greatest lines in the whole speech, she says, I think they will do more for us there than they could if they were here. And she's speaking, of course, about her sons and her husband on the other side, that as spirit beings, they had more of an influence in that state on us than they would have had they lived. And that was one of the ways that she made sense of their death, was that they were more powerful and that they could exert an influence on the saints in the spirit state. Jed, was there anything else with Lucy's speech that that we, we need to make sure our listeners understand? Well, I would say that one of her animating concerns is that she wants to be buried near her husband and her deceased children. And so she says... If I end up going west with you, I would want my bones to be removed, assuming I die in the west, to be taken back to Nauvoo and buried beside my husband. And I think that that's just a tender sentiment. And and she goes on to say the reason for that is that she wants to rise in the resurrection next to them. Mm. We can imagine that she and Joseph Sr., her husband, would be there together holding hands, greeting the Savior as he comes. And That's a beautiful image that in this church that begins with families converting, that her conception of heaven is a reunion of family. And that, I think, really gets to the core of what the restored gospel is about, welding generations together and overcoming of death and being in the presence of the Savior. That is a beautiful sentiment, and uh, certainly it's the doctrine of the church. It's what continues to guide us today. As we think about other parts of chapter 1 as we're beginning Saints Volume 2 here, we have another group of saints who are moving west, but they're going east first. They're going to go by ship. Can you tell us a little bit about this effort? Who's there? Why are they attempting two different routes to the the Mountain West? So let me just give more of a structural overview of where this group fits. So we have the saints in Nauvoo who have gathered from the eastern United States, and they've also gathered from England. And this is obviously the largest group. And Brigham Young, all along, he knows that not all the saints can go in the same season. And so he's trying to manage the numbers because, once again, This is not something that has ever been done on this scale. The immigrants who are moving west at this time to California and Oregon are going in small wagon trains, not thousands and thousands of people at the same time. So he wants people to remain in Nauvoo 
and come in stages, but knowing that there are mobs out there and there are threats, and so he's cognizant of their safety, but he knows that they can't all travel at the same time. So that's one group, Nauvoo. The second group is in the eastern United States, and this group consists of saints who are in small little branches, mainly in New England, but also in New York, who have not yet come to Nauvoo. They were planning to, or maybe they needed more money to come. So it's not desirous for this group to then come and add to the thousands who are already there. So Brigham Young approves of a plan for Sam Brannan, who is a 26-year-old Latter-day Saint, very young in the church, only been in the church four years. And to be clear, this is still a young people's church. There are young men and women who are leading Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, who are in their mid-40s, or are pretty much the senior leaders of a church. We've mentioned Lucy, but she's not heading west. And so Sam Brannan, he's the best material that, that Brigham could find to lead about 200 saints on the ship Brooklyn to California. Brigham knows that if they are in California, they are not going to be that far from where the saints end up settling. And so he approves the plan for Sam Brannan to lead this group of, of saints around the tip of South America and then up the coast to California. And I had never heard this. This is fascinating to me that they went to San Francisco Bay is where they were. Okay, so there's a couple things. <laughs> First of all, I didn't realize how much thought and effort and revelation really went into where the saints were going. I said this in Saints Volume 1, I believe, but I thought it was more arbitrary and they were just running from the mobs. You know, growing up, that's just kind of what I thought. But So it's neat that they really put some effort and were led by God to where they should go. But then it's interesting because those saints in California, they don't know where the other ones are going to be. They didn't have the communication that we have today. And so I was just, as I was reading this, I was worried that they wouldn't find each other. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, communication was difficult. It took months four letters to travel across the Atlantic. So uh, the other component I should mention is the British saints. And Brigham Young says to Wilford Woodruff, who's the British mission president, I want the British saints to stay. We have enough to worry about here getting the Nauvoo saints out. Sam Brannan's group is coming on the west. And so let's have the British saints come at a different time, another season. But then as you're mentioning that, what's interesting is that they also asked that the missionaries that were serving in Europe, come back and receive their endowments before they left Nauvoo. Just as the temple was being completed and they were receiving their endowment, they asked the missionaries to come back. Right. And that puts extra pressure on Wilford Woodruff. This is one of the most heroic parts of the story, the endowing of the saints and the feeling that the endowment could help in this effort of going not only to the West, but going back to the East and then leading people to the West that there was a particular power in the endowment that would seal up a person from temptation and trouble and and woe. Let's play just a little clip here from the book that will describe how important this was and the energy, kind of the enthusiasm, the excitement um, that the people had for receiving their endowment. Brigham Young met one last time with the apostles in the Nauvoo Temple. Though the temple as a whole remained undedicated, they had already dedicated its attic and administered the endowment there to more than 5,000 eager saints. They had also sealed approximately 1,300 couples for time and eternity. 
Brigham had planned to stop administering ordinances on February 3rd, the day before the first wagons left the city. But saints had thronged the temple all day, anxious to receive the ordinances before their departure. At first, Brigham had dismissed them. We shall build more temples and have further opportunities to receive the blessings of the Lord, he had insisted. In this temple we have been abundantly rewarded if we receive no more. Expecting the crowd to disperse, Brigham had started to walk home, but he had not gone far before he returned and found the temple overflowing with people hungering and thirsting for the word of the Lord. That day, 295 more saints had received their temple blessings. So, Jed, this was pretty important to the people, and I think Brigham was. seems like he was a little surprised that they didn't fall in line when he told them we're done. Well, many of these people knew others, friends, family, who had already been endowed. And word of mouth would have spread quickly. This is something that you want to do. There's power in this. And these are people who wanted to make covenants with God. That's really what it came down to, is that they wanted to make those promises with God. They wanted the protection that would come in the event that they went west and they didn't know what would happen to them. And I think the other component of it is that they knew that death was on the horizon for many of them whether it be sooner or later, and that having the comfort of knowing that you were sealed to those you loved in uncertain times when someone could be severed from your family circle was a blessing that was unsurpassing in their minds. And so it's a beautiful thing to think about thousands of saints who, again, live in a world of uncertainty. This is something that we all can relate to today, but are going out with the power of God under their, their belt, so to speak. And we talk about the pioneers having so much faith in God to be able to leave their homes and, you know, all of the things that they've built in Nauvoo. But then to know the faith and the trust that they had in Heavenly Father, to know how beneficial their endowment would be, I think that's inspiring to me and really testifies about the importance of the temple today. I think that's incredible. Jed, there's another part of this story that... I find remarkable. In the Book of Mormon, we learn that when the people were a Zion people, there were no poor among them, something to the effect of there never have been a happier people on earth. These people have a lot, these people in Nauvoo, there's a lot of poor people, but they make a covenant. Tell us about that covenant and what it meant for the poor and, the, and those who had means. I'm glad you mentioned this because this is a really powerful undercurrent of the story that Brigham Young would not allow anyone to be left behind because of poverty. And part of the poverty, we don't want to overstate it. And the reason for that is when the saints made it known to the mob that they were leaving, you can imagine that the property that the saints owned is basically unsellable. Right. And so these are saints, many of them, who have property, they have homes, many of them brick homes, some uh, many log homes, but brick homes were now more in abundance. And imagine if you have to move, Ben, and you are not able to sell your property or your house. Right. This is, where, th this is where all of your finances are tied up in. This right. is the biggest investment you've right. made. So your assets now are, it's worthless. Correct. And so your, your assets are tied up in uh, something that is not liquid, and then you can't liquefy it. 
So many of the saints had this problem where they have to outfit themselves for a long, long journey. They need lots of dry goods. They need wagons. They need oxen. And they cannot sell their property in order to purchase those things. Moreover, the other problem is that so many people in Nauvoo need those things. There aren't enough oxen to go around. Right. And so this is a huge problem. And so Brigham Young, knowing this, he promised the saints, I will not leave you behind. This is a beautiful thing that is at the heart of Zion, to take care of the poor, to make sure that all have access to the heavenly gift. And this is a perpetual message of importance to us. When I think of what would a prophet do, this is what a prophet would do. He would ask his covenant people, to make a covenant, to make sure everybody gets there. And for our listeners, I, I'm just telling you, for me, the next time I get my mill assignment, my, my my stake where I live, we get to serve at the Deseret Mill, and we pack pasta, and we clean up the mill. I'm going to try and remember this moment where Brigham is saying, we're not going to leave anyone behind. And I'm going to do my little part in my stake welfare assignment to try to not leave people behind. Really, that's I think, still the driving force behind our welfare program in the church and what all we do to help the poor and the needy. I appreciate hearing this from you. I would say that the principle can be extended to all sorts of poverty, not just physical poverty, but spiritual and emotional poverty. Especially now, I think that's one of the biggest things that we're dealing with. Right. And so you mentioned the Book of Mormon. How often are we told in the Book of Mormon, remember? And it's not just remember the deep past of God's workings with ancient Israel. That's a big component of the Book of Mormon. But also remember your brethren who are not like unto you and don't have all of the spiritual, emotional, social, physical assets that you may have. And so all of these things are gifts from, from God. And if we have something that we can share by lifting, bringing our fellow saints with us, helping to bring their hands up, holding their weak arms and their feeble knees, then we should do so. Jed, thank you for, for sharing and lifting us with your knowledge, with your talents and skills and abilities. Thank you for listening to the Saints podcast today. I would just remind our listeners, along with each chapter of Saints, there are topics that go into additional depth. For example, with this chapter, we have topics about Lucy Max Smith, Wilford Woodruff, the Council of Fifty, who helped make the decision to move west and where to go, American Indians, uh, Sam Brannan, Sealing, Joseph Smith and Plural Marriage, and, and many others. You can find those in the church history section of the Gospel Library. Please take advantage of those. I'm Ben Godfrey. I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for joining us.